You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. Hello and welcome to Domecast. I'm Jordan Schrader, hosting this week. And with me are Colin Campbell, Lynn Bonner, and Craig Jarvis of the News and Observer. Uh, we're going to talk today about uh, a number of uh, proposals and bills uh, that came out this week, including um, some big announcements on education spending. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, continued attempts to erode the governor's powers, and we're going to uh, end with some talk about uh, why uh, Senator Phil Berger's Facebook use was in the news this week. Uh, but uh, first, Lynn, uh, you covered the education announcements this week, uh, at least one of the big ones, which was uh, dealt with the use of lottery money. So um, what are lawmakers trying to do with that money? Well, one of the things they're trying to do is help uh, poorer rural counties build and repair schools. Um, counties that are smaller don't have a significant tax base and therefore have a hard time um, repairing old buildings and building new ones. Uh, so what um, the senators have proposed is setting aside some money, uh, some lottery revenue, specifically for uh, poorer counties. There would be essentially 80 counties if you're if you were looking at this year and they would be able to use money from a special fund uh, to help them repair or build new buildings now the poorest counties would um, have to uh, put in a dollar for every dollar they got from this fund and uh, kind of the middle tier counties would have to supply two dollars for every dollar but uh, it's a way to to um, help uh, what has been described as kind of a dire situation for them that's, um, you know, may have some economic development implications, you know. Though it was described as that, you know, when a, a company wants to come to town, they say, show me the schools, and they see, uh, you know, broken down buildings. Why are they in such bad shape? Where are they supposed to be getting money from right now? Well, um, there is already money uh, set aside in the lottery, for, uh, lottery fund for construction, but it's spread across 100 counties, uh, and some of the smaller counties don't get very much at all. I mean, really, the, the larger counties don't get very much because there's just not very much, and that fund has to be spread uh, pretty thin. Uh, but counties are responsible for buildings, and when you have a small county with very low tax base, maybe – uh, no major company, not not very many people. Um, even when you raise the uh, raise taxes significantly, it doesn't raise very much money. Um, so, a lot of these small counties have found it impossible to raise a lot of money um, to to build schools. Um, there's been uh, last year there was a, a somewhat controversial bill in uh, that was. You know, there was a mad scramble toward the toward the end of the session to try to get this bill passed that would allow uh, smaller counties, counties without much tax base, to essentially um, have long-term lease-build uh, relationships and be able to use savings um, 
use state money, essentially, to help pay rent on buildings. That never got anywhere, but that may reappear uh, later this year. I asked um, the Senate budget writer, Harry Brown, whether this was uh, the bill they filed was intended to be alternative to this. He said uh, maybe or maybe a supplement to it um, because there's there's still some work being done to uh, to try to get that bill filed. So um, uh, so that's where we are with, with construction. So one of the other things this uh, bill would do as well is set up a pool of money for uh, teacher uh, – I'm sorry, uh, principal and assistant principal raises um, – during the interim, uh, the House and Senate were talking about ways to raise uh, principal raises and get talented principals into struggling schools. It was interesting that the Senate kind of went out on its own with this plan uh, to essentially have this very intricate uh, system of principal raises and bonuses, but um, would set up a pool of money that would have um, the superintendents determine principal raises, which is a a big departure from the way things are done now. So we'll see where that where that goes. Would there still be a, essentially a salary schedule for principals? No, the salary schedule would be gone. Uh, the way they have it set up is that no principal would make less than they do this year, but in terms of how big a raise they would get, that would be entirely up to their boss. Okay. And do uh, you expect the House to go with whatever the uh, study committee was looking at? Or? Well, the study committee um, determination was really very hazy. I mean, this this uh, Senate bill makes a lot more things concrete, but um, I'm sure they're going to get a lot of feedback on this idea that um, a superintendent is going to determine raises, and uh, trashing the salary schedule is a, is a big step. So um, I'm not expecting that the House is going to buy this wholesale. Okay. It also in, uh, it included in the bill is increasing the cap on uh, lottery revenue that can go to advertising, and that has been controversial in previous years. Um, the House hasn't gone along with that. Uh, it's interesting that they didn't put it in the budget this year, but I expect that that's also going to be a point of contention at some point. And that would basically allow them to make more money, they think, by uh, exactly. boosting the number of people who play. Yes. Um, the other big education announcement had to do with uh, teachers and their uh, pay and, and benefits. Uh, basically, uh, some lawmakers want to bring back the teaching fellows program, but only for specific teachers. So what does that proposal look like? Yes, they want a much smaller and targeted teaching fellows program that would have um, forgivable loans for uh, people who go into teaching in STEM fields, special education, uh, and for teachers who, uh, those teachers who um, go to uh, struggling schools. Um, it would be much smaller, 160 students, I believe, and the last graduating class of uh, the old teaching fellows program was uh, 550 students. Um, and why did, and yeah, why did they get rid of the old teaching? Fellows? You know, it was never really clear. You know, uh, it was something that the Senate wanted to get rid of. The House had, um, you know, when Tom Tillis was House Speaker, he often said he wanted to bring it back or wanted to help preserve it, but the Senate was um, intent on getting rid of it. Um, so they let it phase out over four years, and the Senate had 
sort of rebuffed attempts on the part of House budget writers to bring back something like it. Uh, not really clear why they decided to bring it back, uh, but it will be lots more targeted. And only five colleges and universities will be involved. Um, the old teaching fellows was, was a lot broader and had a lot more uh, participation by uh, universities and colleges. Okay, so this is not just, a, for instance, Roy, Roy Cooper, Governor Cooper put something uh, reviving a version of teaching fellows in his budget too, but it sounds like this is a more significant breakthrough if it's coming from the Senate that wanted to get rid of the program in the first place. Yes, there. it's interesting that this will turn out to be is a point of agreement or almost agreement on the part of uh, the governor and, and the state legislature. Okay. Uh, well, Craig, you reported on some more developments in the ongoing attempt by the legislature to uh, reduce, uh, eliminate some powers of the governor uh, since we've had Cooper take over as governor. Uh, what was it this week? Well, there's been an effort in that started in the House to uh, reduce the size of the State Court of Appeals from 15 to 12 judges. Uh, they would uh, basically, once they aged out or retired, the, the next three vacancies would just not be filled. Uh, each, uh, each of those happened to be Republican. Uh, it would transpire over the next couple years. I think 2019 is when the, we'd account for all three of them. The governor, uh, Democrat Roy Cooper, should, as of the law stands now, would be able to appoint uh, replacements uh, to, to, for those vacancies. Um, this would uh, uh, obviously deprive him of that opportunity if they shrunk the court. So um, the Republicans that are pushing it said it's, that's not the, the goal, that it's strictly a workload thing. They're, they're, the uh, studies have shown the uh, Supreme Court doesn't have enough work and uh, or has too much work, and the State Court of Appeals workload is going down. So they wanted to... Uh, they don't think they needed as many people, and they did some other stuff to shift some cases uh, that would have gone to the Court of Appeals to the Supreme Court. So um, that bill, though, was hurt. Was was one of three bills that uh, uh, kind of raised eyebrows because the other would would allow uh, would would take away the governor's authority and give it to the legislature to appoint uh, special superior court judges. They're judges who are not elected, but they travel around the state to handle workload, or they might have some special expertise in a complex case, as well as to fill vacancies uh, when district court judges, uh, um, when, the, when there are vacancies on those courts. So right now, the governor has that authority. This would simply, very straightforwardly, say, no, the legislature uh, has that authority. So the three bills are kind of part of a larger pattern that we've seen uh, with the uh, Republican legislature looking for ways to deprive the governor of, of his uh, some of his authority. Most of those judges, with the exception you mentioned, are elected. Uh, this would only fill vacancies. So, how big of a deal is this? Do people who are appointed by uh, the governor is the thinking that you know, they'll probably get uh, elected uh, if they're appointed because people elect the incumbents? I yeah, guess. That, that's basically. There, you've got a leg up if you're the uh, if you're the incumbent. You usually, <clears throat> not always, of course, but you usually uh, are successful at. Yet uh, winning that seat over, yeah, that would be the the expectation. Um, and there was they the house uh, the house uh, debated it for about an hour and a half, I think, on uh, Thursday. And there was a lot of uh, teeth gnashing on both sides about what the who's you know what the ulterior motives were. I will say one thing: it happened very quickly. It really just popped up. I mean, the bills. I'm not sure when the bills were filed. I think within the last couple of weeks, perhaps. Uh, it went to a committee for the first time Wednesday, where they. Uh, rushed all three bills through very quickly. They allowed literally one minute each from two speakers from the public, uh, and then the next day it's on the floor of the House. Now it's on its way to the Senate. 
But some opposition over this uh, uh, Court of Appeals reduction is, is sort of mounting, and and I, I you know, th- this could very well uh, derail in the Senate. Uh, this comes as we've had other attempts to uh, take away some powers from the governor, and uh, kind of just run through run through some of those. What, what have, what's happened during uh, um, the previous special session and and so far this session? Well, right now we're waiting for a court ruling on a on a lawsuit the governor filed that uh, challenges a number of things that happened in the last session. Uh, including uh, the cabinet appointments, the legislature signing off on the governor's cabinet appointments, um, doing away with the boards of election and uh, ethics and creating a new commission, which the governor would have less uh, authority over majority appointments on, and, um, oh, having to do with uh, the patronage appointments, basically, what, you know, political, limiting the number of political appointments the governor can have. <clears throat> so... I think that those are the main things. There's also something on the board of governors or board of uh, yeah. boards yeah. of trustees that would right. also uh, have deprived the governor of some appointment powers. So they took away his power on to appoint members of each university board. That's right. Yeah. Um, That's and then, nice. Colin, you've written about one where they're yeah. trying to take away some powers to appoint community yeah, colleges. Yeah, community college trustees. boards is the latest one, and that one's an interesting one because it's specific to individual community colleges. So this is a bill that. I think it's already passed the House, is now over in the Senate, and because it's a local bill, wouldn't have to go before the governor. These other things we've been talking about, uh, because they're statewide laws, Cooper would have the option to veto it, and the question is whether uh, Republicans in the House and Senate would then have the, enough votes to override his veto and, and make these things happen. So you can pa- they could pass a bill that just deals with one community college and says the governor can't appoint yeah. these. And in this case, I think they did like 16 or 17 of them, but out of you know 58 community colleges, so it's... It's treated as a local bill, which never requires the governor's signature. Hmm. Okay. Well, unless there's any more to say about that, I think we'll uh, talk about the other uh, uh, big story you had this week, Colin, which was um, Senate Leader Phil Berger's uh, Facebook posts. So why did this become news? Yeah, this was interesting. So obviously, uh, Senate Leader Phil Berger, like most politicians, has a Facebook page where he uh, shares news relevant to, to his agenda and uses it to, you know, criticize some political opponents. That, of course, is nothing new. Uh, but what we found on his Facebook page was that he was, uh, in addition to sort of offering commentary on his own takes, uh, he was sharing news articles from uh, news sources like the NNO, like the Charlotte Observer and uh, WBTV, which is a TV news station down in Charlotte, um, and was sharing their link. So you would go click on the link and it would take you to a news article. But the format of the links uh, showed up with a different headline and in some cases a different photo um, that were sort of designed and written by Senator Berger's staff, uh, usually to sort of needle Roy Cooper and turn a story that was sort of an unbiased uh, news story into something that looked like it was an attack on Roy Cooper written by a well-respected journalistic institution around the state. Um, So... That resulted in a a letter from our executive editor here asking uh, Senator Berger to stop the practice. Um, There was also some contacts made to Facebook. Uh, The end result was that Facebook sent us a a notification that they believed that Senator Berger had indeed uh, violated their policies that uh, ban you from posting anything misleading on their site, uh, and they had required that the post be taken down. 
Berger staff then takes issue with that um, and suggests that there is uh, censorship uh, on the part of both the NNO and and of Facebook and uh, lashes out on Twitter and Facebook about that. Uh, so that's been a subject of a lot of conversations this week and is certainly a interesting aspect of uh, the, the social media communications landscape that we're in right now. And it just it's kind of interesting on just on the technology side because I didn't know you could do this and you can't if you're just an ordinary Facebook user, right? Yeah. So the idea is. That that if you're on your own personal profile and you're sharing a news article, you, you're stuck with whatever the, the headline on the original news article is. If you're a page and you're promoting your brand or anything of that, one of the pages that you can hit the like button on, uh, then you have more power to change the headline. And apparently the idea behind that is that uh, news organizations in some cases are buying ads to promote their post. And Facebook wants to give them the freedom to say if, if they want a headline to show up one way on their website, but a different way when they post it on Facebook, they feel like, uh, you know, a news media organization would should have the freedom to do that. But there's the loophole there that means somebody else with the page who's not affiliated with that news organization uh, ends up with that same freedom to change things around and, and put a different headline on something, which is uh, something that evidently Facebook frowns on, as we learned this week with their interactions with Senator Berger's staff. Yeah. And I don't know, is Facebook more sensitive to this because there's been so much talk about fake news and things like that? Yeah, you know, I think that has a lot to do with it. Facebook's gotten a lot of criticism for uh, not, uh, I guess, not censoring the uh, proliferation of these news articles that are completely fabricated and are designed to sort of get clicks on Facebook um, and then make a substantial amount of money for the person running the fake news website. So I think there's a worry about that. Uh, In our story, we avoided using the term fake news, but I noticed when the Associated Press uh, did their own version of the story. The headline was, you know, fake news question mark, and Senator Berger did this, that, and the other. Yeah, and the story, your story just basically spelled out what the practice was, which which it wasn't that, you know, if you went to the story, you would see the original story, but it's that little preview that would yeah, show up. Yeah, it's the preview your, that shows uh, up, and, like, you know, statistics tell you that uh, a fairly small percentage of people who see a post like that on Facebook actually click through the article. A lot of people just read the headlines, and, you know, that's the way a lot of people choose to consume their news, and we generally like the headlines to be accurate and and what the story is trying to reflect for those who don't make it all the way to reading the entire thing. Right. Okay, well, we'll keep watching that. It looks like uh, that at least for a while uh, after the NNO sent the letter, Senator Berger wasn't yeah, doing that Yeah, they, they've made no promises to stop doing it, but since we pointed it out to them, I have not seen any new posts that, that did this. Most of the links now have either been just to an unaltered news headline, uh, or in some cases, if, uh, if Senator staff wants to put their own spin on the news, they put up a blog post on his campaign site and just link to that. Uh, well, uh, one more thing before we uh, adjourn and reconvene for Headliner of the Week. You also had a story today, uh, Friday, um, about former Representative Chris Groh uh, and whether he should be considered a lobbyist or not. What's uh, what's the significance of whether he should be actually labeled a lobbyist? Yeah, this is another one of those sort of gray areas that, you know, come up in these odd situations. So Scrow is an unusual guy in that, uh, he's for several years now been the head of Equality North Carolina, and up until last April, he was registered as their official lobbyist. Uh, obviously, big advocate on, on LGBT issues, and arguably one of the uh, best known voices um, in the state on those issues. Uh, and then after House Bill Two passed last year, uh, there was a desire among Democrats to have uh, someone who is openly gay, as Scro is in the legislature. Uh, so he was appointed to fill a term of a, a lawmaker from Greensboro who died in office. Uh, so when he took that job. 
as a legislator, he resigned his uh, role as a lobbyist, but remained the executive director of Equality North Carolina. Uh, he served in the legislature through December uh, when his term ended and uh, now is in the what's known as the six-month cooling-off period for former legislators. This prevents you from uh, resigning your job as a legislator one day and the next day going back to the legislature and lobbying on issues and, and being paid to do so uh, by some outside group. Um, so Scro is not registered as a lobbyist. He says he does not plan to, uh, but he has been advocating on HB2 issues, as you can imagine, uh, and, and been fairly vocal in uh, opposing some of the, the compromise proposals that have been floated. And, and you can kind of see some of his work uh, very public because he's been uh, engaging directly with members of the legislature on Twitter, uh, lots of back and forth exchanges uh, in, in which he's had discussions uh, using that platform with members of the legislature making the case that uh, certain repeal proposals are, are not valid, that he would like to see a full repeal of, of House Bill 2. So there's the question of, does that constitute lobbying? And that's sort of the, the core of it. Um, and it really is a gray area. I think everyone I talked to seemed to think that, you know, some of the people on the Republican side thought that, you know, what he was doing didn't quite smell right, but there was really no way to prove that he's outside uh, the rules that are set out for heads of advocacy groups, which is it's kind of an odd one that uh, if you're in charge of an advocacy group and you're trying to figure out, am I a lobbyist or not? Uh, the test is, uh, do you spend more than 5% of your time in a month uh, doing activities like lobbying? And lobbying is pretty much defined as you're having conversations with legislators, you're being paid, and you're advancing a certain legislative agenda. Um, and if, if you're head of a advocacy group, uh, you know, what would be the reason that they would have that exception that you would not have to register as a lobbyist? Because I would think a lot of what an advocacy group does, uh, at least this kind of advocacy group, is, is, is try, to, try to yes. get <laughs> their agenda passed through some kind of government. Yeah, and I think the when I talked to Representative Skip Stam, former Representative Skip Stam, he's uh, no longer in the legislature this year, uh, he was involved in writing the lobbying law um, some years back, and, and he basically explained that they didn't want to have that extra paperwork for people who really are not doing their work in the building. They've got somebody else who's down there being the lobbyist. Uh, and being a lobbyist does come with a lot of, you know, you have to register, you have to fire, file a variety of paperwork. Uh, it is a lot of effort. Um, and the idea was to prevent you from doing that if if going down to the building was just something you did once in a while to answer some questions, but really you had somebody else who was your on-the-ground guy who was there every single day. And he does have somebody like that. Yeah, there, there is. So, a, yeah. A, it's actually probably worth a, a profile at some point. Is I think maybe the first transgender lobbyist that's been registered at the, the legislature, Ames Simmons, who is a transgender man, and I believe his title is uh, Director of Transgender Policy for Equality North Carolina. So he is their, I think, sole lobbyist right now. And, uh, and Chris Crow did explain to me that that's the guy he's got um, actually going in and meeting with legislators directly and, and doing sort of the day-to-day -day lobbying for the organization. Okay, well, we uh, will take a quick break and come right back with Headliner of the Week. Stay with us. Every two minutes, an American is sexually assaulted. Be the someone who gives their time. Be the someone who lends an ear. Be the someone who takes a step. This is Christina Ricci with Rain, asking you to join the fight against sexual violence and volunteer in your community. Log on to rain.org. That's R-A-I-N-N dot O-R-G to learn how you can be the someone. This message brought to you by the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network and this station. Who is your headliner of the week? Who is your headliner of the week? Who is your headliner of the week? 
head, 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 headliner of the week. And we're back with Headliner of the Week, where we decide who is the most interesting or influential person, place, or thing in this week's news. Uh, Colin, why don't you start us off? Who's your Headliner of the Week? I'm going with Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest, who was in the news this week. Not for anything he was doing in North Carolina, but he was actually on the road this week in Texas to uh, lobby in favor of uh, sort of a similar House Bill 2 bathroom-type legislation there. Uh, and, and to make the case that essentially, the, you know, despite what you've heard in the media, that uh, all is, is well and good in, in North Carolina and the, the aftermath of uh, House Bill 2, uh, Forrest uh, is keeping a high profile uh, in part because he's uh, well known to be a potential contender uh, for governor in, in, in 2020 and uh, certainly has uh, been one of the most vocal defenders of, of House Bill 2, not only in North Carolina, but also in, in places like Texas. Okay, and we can't have any time where we don't talk about the next election, right? So we we yeah. got to keep going with that. Yeah, I got to throw uh, that in every week. There's an election <laughs> coming up, and you know it's only three years and X number of months. <laughs> Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest in the hat for headliner of the week. Lynn, who's your headliner? I'm going to pick Representative Justin Burr, who is an Albemarle Republican. Uh, he has been front and center this week with bills that would change the judiciary. Um, reducing the Court of Appeals, uh, making uh, judgeships partisan. Uh, And one of the reasons I think he is worthy of the honor is because he's uh, really come in from the cold. Um, He had a falling out with uh, the House Speaker uh, and quite a public falling out. He was um, removed from his chairmanship of appropriations, but now he seems to be back in the fold. So I'll... uh, I'll pick uh, Representative Burr this week. Okay. Representative Justin Burr, he's been on everything, including, I don't, uh, we didn't talk about it much, but the uh, making judicial elections uh, partisan, uh, as well as the bills that Craig talked about. Uh, Craig, who's your headliner of the week? Uh, Governor Roy Cooper, only because he's the uh, state of the state address uh, uh, ticket on Monday night at, at the uh, in the House chambers, which will feature the House and the Senate and other dignitaries like the uh, justices of the Supreme Court and cabinet officials, that sort of thing. Uh, it, it'll obviously be Cooper's first state of the state of speech, so we'll see how it's how well it's received. Uh, <clears throat> I don't think it'll be as uh, boisterously received as the uh, as McCrory's first uh, state of the state was back in 2013, when uh, lawmakers gave him. Uh, rousing round of applause <clears throat> constantly through, throughout the uh, address. Um, but this is obviously a different dynamic, and uh, we'll see how it plays out. Governor Roy Cooper, uh, what, uh, you know, what should we expect from, from him, do you think? What do you think he'll talk about? He, it hasn't been long enough for him to yeah. have a whole lot of things to you know, tout yet. But uh, I think he's you... just going to set uh, you know, the, what we've been hearing from him on the campaign trail and then in the budget that was released recently, which is – um, money in education to build a more skilled workforce, uh, expanding Medicaid uh, as much as possible, and then um, uh, HP2, repealing HP2. What? what is that? We <laughs> almost got through this session. Oh, no, I already talked about yeah, HP2. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you did? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, you can't do a podcast one of these days. That's, that's one of these days. We'll the get through one. Anyway, so those are the three main things that he, ham- he hammers away on a lot. And we'll see. Uh, you know, he's going to talk about the economy and, and, uh, and uh, that kind of thing. But it is a different dynamic with the, uh, with, with the elected uh, General Assembly. We'll see. 
We'll see what they think of him. All right. Governor Roy Cooper in the hat for headliner of the week. Uh, well, we'll see what uh, Governor Cooper has to say at State of the State, but I think this week we'll go with Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest just because uh, it was very interesting to see him going to another state and pitching that they should do what North Carolina has done and pass something very much, very similar to HB2. And he made some interesting statements. So uh, Will Doran, our PolitiFact guy, is not on the podcast this week, but he did uh, fact-check some of the statements. So check out PolitiFact North Carolina and, and see uh, how true some of Dan Forrest's statements were about HB2 and its impacts. Yes, he, he's had a couple of, uh, uh, of fact-checks lately on our, uh, on, done by Will and done by PolitiFact. So um, we've got uh, a growing number of those. Um, but yeah, let's, Lieutenant Governor Dan Forrest is our headliner of the week for his trip outside the state. All right, uh, that's it for Domecast. Uh, thanks for joining us. And on behalf of Colin Campbell, Lynn Bonner, and Craig Jarvis, I'm Jordan Schrader. Uh, come join us next time. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.